If you have a Bible with you, turn to Acts, the 17th uh, chapter. If you're new to the New Testament, Acts is the uh, fifth book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then the Acts of the Apostles. And I'm going to begin reading with verse 16. Now, Paul, well, now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within, within him as he was beholding the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. And some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. We want to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all Athenians and, and strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. Uh, Paul found himself in the city of Athens all alone. His uh, companions, Timothy and Silas, had been left behind in, in Berea. Athens was not on Paul's uh, itinerary. He was planning to go to Ephesus. He didn't, spend, didn't expect to spend a great deal of time in that city, but uh, while he was there, he did what tourists normally do in Athens. He began to sightsee. Athens was then and still is uh, an impressive city, magnificent architecture, statues, remnants of the marketplace can still be seen today. The Parthenon that uh, crowns the Acropolis that housed the statue of Athena, who was the patroness of, uh, of the city of Athens, the, the goddess for whom the city was named. Paul began to make his way through these cities. And uh, he saw something that perhaps we might not see. If you go there today, you can still see the buildings. You go to the museums, you can still see the statues that he saw. But he saw something more. He realized that these statues were gods and goddesses. And as Luke puts it in his account, Paul's heart became terribly distressed. The word that Luke uses for distress is the word from which we get our English word paroxysm. There was a storm of emotion which Paul began to feel. His heart broke as he saw the darkness and the superstition and the meaninglessness with which uh, people's lives were, were afflicted. And he had to do something about it. So he went to the synagogue where there were both Jews and God-fearers, that is, Gentiles who were proselytes to Judaism. These were people who likewise would be incensed with the idolatry of, of that city, but they were powerless and impotent, overwhelmed and intimidated by the might and the intellectualism of that city. Athens was well past her prime. This was about 400 years after the age of Pericles and the golden age of Greece, but uh, she still was the center, the academic and intellectual center of, of the ancient uh, world. It was a university town. The professors, 
philosophers, lecturers, students uh, fill the, the town. And uh, the religious people of that city were intimidated and overwhelmed by the city. And uh, so Paul, after a time of reasoning in the synagogue, went out into the marketplace to meet people where, where they are, to talk to merchants and businessmen and women and commercial people. And he began to give away his faith on the, on the street. And he attract, attracted the attention of the philosophers of that age who used to hold forth in the marketplace. Uh, two groups are mentioned here, the Epicureans and, and the Stoics. The Epicureans went back to a man named Epicurus who lived about 300 years before Paul's uh, time. Epicurus' uh, uh, philosophy basically was, uh, uh, was one of hedonism. He believed that pleasure was the chief end of, of man. You live for sex and suds and whatever will make you happy. And uh, uh, the Stoics traced their origins back to a man named Zeno who came from uh, Cyprus who held forth in the stoa, that is, in the porch of the marketplace, and that's why they were called Stoics. And their, their philosophy was a tough mind in a, in a hard body. You have to grin and bear it. It struck me as I was reading through this account this week that we still have Epicureans and, and Stoics with us today. The Epicureans represent the more existential uh, philosophers of our, of our day, those who say... To do is to be. You find your existence in, in doing, living life to the hilt. You only go around once, so you've got to go for the gusto. And on the other side of the spectrum, you find those whose philosophy is to be, is to do. That uh, what's really important is a, in order to face the hard facts of life, the difficult circumstances of life, is to be tough. And then there is Frank Sinatra, whose philosophy is doobie, doobie, do. <laughs> but uh, <clears throat> these were some of the uh, forces that, uh, that the apostle was facing, and he began to debate with them. And what he experienced is what you often experience when you talk to the intellectual crowd. There was both contempt and curiosity. They began to call him names, called him a seed picker. Literally, the translation here is idle babbler, but it's a pejorative term. It's referring to the little gutter sparrows that used to hop around in the marketplace and pick up scraps of food here and there. And they're thinking of Paul as a garbage collector, someone who just picks up a few facts here and there and stores them away to be, uh, to be given away to others. But there were some who were very curious about Paul. And he said, we want to we hear this man. He seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because, Jesus was, uh, because Paul was talking about Jesus and the resurrection. He was sounding a note of hope in this hopeless, meaningless, existential, uh, agnostic world in, in, which, uh, in which Paul found himself. He was talking about someone who once for all solved the problem of of death, which is the problem that none of the philosophers and sages of that age could uh, could solve, and so they invited him to come to the Areopagus in order that they might hear this new teaching. Uh, the Areopagi were uh, uh, sort of a debating society. They they uh, they got their name from the place where they originally met. If, if you visit Greece today, 
just to the northwest of the Acropolis is an outcropping of rock and a, with a flat uh, top. And, uh, that's where the philosophers used to gather to debate. The word Areopagus means the hill, Gapus, the hill of Ares, who is the god of, of war. It corresponded to the Roman god Mars. And, uh, but they had moved from that site, and they were down in the stoa, the marketplace, and they, it was, as I said, a sort of debating society. They got together to hear something new because they had, had run all of their philosophies out to their logical conclusions. And they found themselves uh, empty, something missing. And they, Paul was talking about something that was new. Luke says uh, parenthetically in verse 21 that all the Athenians and strangers, that is the tourists, the visitors that came to Athens... And, visit, and were visiting there, used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or, or hearing something new. See, that's the yearning and the hunger of, of their hearts, something that they could, they could grasp. Mark Twain said, you don't know what it is that you want, but you want it so much your heart nearly breaks. And that's, uh, that was their state of mind. They desperately wanted to hear something that would assuage that, that awful hunger in their heart. And uh, so Paul stood, and he began to uh, began to speak to them. Now, I have mentioned before that it's my conviction that the book of Acts is actually Luke's legal brief for Paul's defense before Nero in, in Rome. And uh, it's not really a history so much as it's a legal document. And uh, what Paul does, in, or what Luke does in this book, is to gather together uh, examples of apostolic teaching, Peter's teaching and Paul's teaching and others. And uh, what you, you have in chapter 13 is an example of Paul's preaching to a Jewish audience. That's uh, a report on a message that he gave uh, at a synagogue. It's obviously a, a, a shortened version, but it gives us some idea of the way Paul related to his Jewish friends. Then in Acts 20, you have an example of Paul preaching to a church, to the elders of a church. And that's the way he spoke to those that were followers of Christ. And uh, in chapter 17, you have an example of how Paul talked to unbelieving Gentiles, those Gentiles that were not followers of, of Christ. And uh, what, what you have here, I think, is a, is a model of the way that we need to relate to our friends and, and neighbors that don't know our Lord. Uh, it's not a ABC the approach is rather a, uh, it, it indicates rather a spirit, a way of approaching people. Now let's, uh, let's read his sermon. Again, this is obviously a, uh, a shortened, shortened version, but it gives us some idea of what Paul had to say to men and women in his world. Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus. You have to realize what an intimidating environment this was. The greatest minds of, of the age were were gathered, philosophers and academicians. I never can say that word, academicians, academicians. There you go, academicians. And uh, students, uh, uh, many of, of whom were had already indicated scorn and contempt for Paul's point of view. But uh, Paul stood up and he began to speak. Men of Athens, he said, I observe that you're very religious in all respects. For while I was speaking, while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. 
Uh, Pausanias, who was a contemporary, roughly a contemporary of Paul, said that there were probably uh, in excess of 30,000 of these statues representing gods and goddesses in the city of Athens. Early on, there had been a plague in Athens, and they turned loose a flock of sheep, and wherever a sheep would lie down, they would sacrifice it, and there they would erect an altar to a god, and they had run through all the gods that they were aware of, all 30,000 of them. And in order to cover all the bases so they wouldn't leave someone out, they erected an altar to an unknown god. See, it's where they were. They were in, they were in agnosticism. They didn't know. They knew there must be something more, but they didn't. They didn't know what it is. And uh, Paul, spotting that unknown god, saw a point of of contact. What you worship in ignorance, he said, I proclaim to you. I'm going to tell you about this god whom you're already worshiping. That you don't know. Uh, the God who made the world and all things in it. Since he is the Lord of heaven and earth. Does not dwell in temples made with hands. I suspect that Paul at that point may have pointed up toward the uh, Parthenon. Which was just immediately above him to the southeast. So God doesn't live up there. He, uh, he's the one who made the world and all things in it. He does not dwell in temples made with hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all life and breath and all things. And he made from one every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they should seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. That's an interesting philosophy of history. I've never seen that in any history book anywhere, that God appoints the, uh, the, uh, the origins and the endings of nations and their habitation, the extent uh, of their uh, rule, their sovereignty, and the strictures of history, the limits, the pressures, the problems, the wars, the conflicts of history are all designed to lead people to know God. That's the purpose of history. As someone has said, history is his story. What Paul is saying is that the chief end of man and woman is to know God. And it doesn't make any difference what else you do. If you come through life and you don't know God, you've missed the purpose of life. He will stand before God and he will say, it was a marvelous performance, but you missed the whole purpose, you see. Now Paul goes on, for in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. Being then the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought that is the imagination of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, and that word ignorance is based on the Greek word from which our word agnostic comes from, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent, should change their mind about the direction in which they're going. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now, I just want to make some general observations. Again, uh, this, is, this is not a series of rules or regulations that ought to govern 
the way we share our faith. It really has to do with, us, with the spirit in which we share it. First thing I want to observe is that Paul was very, very courteous, very respectful. It's always wrong to be rude to unbelievers, always. There's never any excuse for it. Jesus could be very hard on those who claim to be his followers and who are not living in obedience to him. But he was never harsh, never rude with those that were on the outside. Always gentle, always the gentleman. Always loving, always kind. Paul puts it this way in, in uh, his letter to Timothy. He said, the Lord's bondservant must not be argumentative. It's sin to be argumentative. Have you ever been in a meeting where uh, you have a mixed group of those that follow Christ and those that don't? And, and, and one of the unbelievers makes some remark about Christianity. And, and it sometimes is, is a tad abusive. And you see the fangs grow in the Christians and they, they go for the jugular vein. And I just wince when I see that. It troubles me so much to see these portrayals on television of, of Christians going hard after people that that represent a point of view that they don't they don't accept. That's so wrong. Paul says we must not be argumentative, but kind to all. That word kind is a word in classical Greek that's used to refer to, to good wine, old wine. Be mellow. Be gentle, strong to be acerbic and, and, and uh, acidic, and sharp, and harsh with people. Able to teach. We need to instruct, but we need to instruct in love. Patient when wronged. Even when people misrepresent you and misunderstand us, we, we should respond with patience. Remember Jesus' words on the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And someday they'll... They may not nail you to a cross, but they may nail you to a wall. And your response in, in that, in the, on those occasions is to be patient, and to be gentle, not to respond defensively and with hostility. With gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Do you understand what Paul is saying? The, the, the people that oppose us are not the enemy. They're the, they're the victims of the enemy. They've been victimized. The enemy is the one behind the scenes, the evil one who's causing them to behave in this way. And, and Paul says that if we speak to them in love, we speak truth in love, they may be delivered from from that captivity. If they're to be delivered at all, Paul says, it will only be done in, in that way. Apparently, the, the good news only sounds good when it's delivered with, with good manners. Love always has good manners. That's the first thing I want to say. Paul was exceedingly respectful. He was courteous in his demeanor. I have a friend, Matt Prince, I've mentioned him before, who was called over to a neighbor's house one day for dinner, and when he got there, he discovered it was a setup. There was another neighbor there who was very hostile toward Christians, and all through the meal, he kept baiting Matt. He would say, uh, "You know, every uh, societal ill can be traced back to Christians." And Matt would say, "Well, that's an interesting point of view. Tell me, what do you what do you do for a living?" And uh, 
after a bit, the man would say, you can't really tell me that you believe that a book written 2,000 years ago has any relevance, whatever, for for this, uh, for this society today. And Matt would say, well, you know, I, you know, yeah, I believe that. Some people believe. But tell me, what what do you do for fun? You know, what, what recreational pursuits do you have? Through the whole evening, it went like that. And Matt just kept deflecting these attacks. And as they were going out the door, the fellow stopped him. And he, and he said again, and one other thing, Matt, and Matt walked over and put his arms around him. He said, say, uh, he said, tell me, all night you've been wanting to talk about religion. He says, w- w- what is it? Are you some kind of religious nut? <clears throat> and I thought, bravo, see. You know, respond with good humor. You know, what a deft touch. What, what a winning way. You know, how winsome just to, you know, to... Take those hard shots and respond with, with love and, and with compassion. But nevertheless, to, to speak the truth. The second th- thing I observe about this passage is that Paul really handles it quite a bit differently than we, than we would, I think. We are so explicit. You know, we, you know, we, we, we quote scripture as though we're on common ground. We're not, you know. People out there don't accept the scriptures as their authority for, for life, and for, for practice, and for faith. That's not their basis. And uh, you notice what Paul does? He speaks truth. He speaks truth even though it is spoken by pagan poets, what he would consider pagan poets, unbelieving poets. You notice there are a couple of phrases here in verse uh, 28. For in him we live and move and exist and then again in the, in, in the same verse, one of your own poets has said, for we also are his offspring. Now, the first quotation comes from a poet by the name of Epimenides, who is a, a Cretan. And this, this is the, uh, the quotation in full. They fashioned a tomb for you, O Zeus. He's talking not about the Lord God of Israel, but about the God Zeus. They fashioned a tomb for you, O Zeus. The Cretans, always liars, evil beasts, idle, idle bellies. You'll recognize that quote from Titus. He quotes uh, that, that poet when he writes a letter to, to Titus. Paul was well-versed in the literature of his day. But you are not dead, again, with reference to Zeus. You are not dead. You live and abide forever, for in you we live and move and have our being. Now, Paul didn't worship Zeus. But Epimenides was quoting truth. All truth is God's truth. And whenever anyone speaks truth, then it's legitimate for us to use that truth. And that's what Paul is doing here. And then later he quotes another, another poet, Aratus, who was a citizen of Paul's hometown of Cilicia. Apparently it had some contact with him. Never, O man, let us leave him, uh, Zeus, unmentioned. All ways are full of Zeus, and all the meeting places of men, the sea and the harbors are full of him. In every direction, we all have to do with him, for we are his offspring. And you'll notice the quote here. What's he doing? Well, he's just quoting their literature, and he's saying there's some truth there, and that ought to speak to to your heart. And then he also quotes the scriptures. But you don't know it because he doesn't tell you where the what are the sources for his statement. It's not apparent in our versions because it's not in quotes, but in verse 28, or pardon me, verse 24, 
The phrase, the God who made the world and all things in it, is a quotation from Isaiah 42, 5. And uh, in verse 25, since he himself gives to all life and breath and all things, that is similarly a, a quotation from Isaiah 42, 5. And then in verse 31, uh, the line, he will judge the world in righteousness. That's a quotation from one of the Psalms, Psalm 9, I believe. And uh, what he's doing is quoting scripture, but he isn't telling them where it, what his source is, you see, because scripture has its own witness. Scripture has an inherent witness. It's what theologians refer to as a super apologetic. You don't have to defend it. You just declare it. And the truth strikes home. It sets up a, a resonance in our hearts. And I, you know, I fear sometimes we just quote the Bible at people rather than speak truth to them. Some of you remember Sam Erickson when he was here, the, uh, who was at that time the, the chief counsel for the Christian Legal Society. And he told us that it is perfectly permissible to quote Jesus in classrooms. It's not illegal, as long as you don't put chapter and verse. You can put quotations around your, uh, around your schoolroom. Uh, never give up, never give up, never give up, Winston Churchill. The heart has reasons that only reason knows, Blaise Pascal. If the eye is single, the whole body will be full of light. Jesus. That's perfectly permissible. And the amazing thing is that truth has an impact built right into it, and when people hear those words, they know it's true. As Luther said, you don't have to defend the Bible. The Bible is like a lion. You just let it out of the cage. You know, we don't have to apologize for it. You just speak truth, and it has an enormous impact. The third thing that I notice about this passage is that Paul has a basic assumption that people are incurably religious. You notice what he says in verse 22, Men of Athens, I observe that you're very religious in all, all respects. Do you know that that's true about your friends, even your friends who seem to be very secular, who seem to have no interest in spiritual things, who never darken the door of a church, who never read the Bible, who never talk about God, who seem to be totally out of touch with spiritual things? Do you know that they're religious? Because, you see, God made us for himself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in him. We're spiritual beings. We're made in the image of God. We're the most godlike beings on the face of the earth. We have a, a, a very uh, close resemblance to him. And uh, we were made to, to know him, and our hearts know that, you see. And, 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 and even though people appear on the surface to have absolutely no interest in spiritual things, down, down deep inside is that great hunger. They are restlessly searching. That's why if they do not believe in, in the Lord God of Israel, there are no end of gods that they will worship, trying to find some answer to the yearning of, of their hearts. As Marilyn Monroe uh, put it, her classic expression, I believe in everything a little. You know, if you don't believe in God, you'll, you'll believe in anything and, and everything because you just have to. You see, that is the world's soft spot. That's the way I like to think of it. When I'm sitting down talking to someone who seems very hard, utterly disinterested in spiritual things, I know that, that down in there, buried perhaps under a lot of debris, is a very soft heart that's, that's yearning for something, something more. 
I have a uh, far side cartoon in my office that shows this huge woolly mammoth lying on its back and it has a little tiny arrow sticking in its side, just a very small arrow. And obviously the arrow has killed the mammoth and it's lying on its back. And there are two cavemen standing there with bows and arrows and, and they're looking kind of astonished. And one looks at the other and says, we got to remember that spot. <laughs> and I keep it up there because I need to remember that spot, see, that soft spot that people have. You don't need to worry about stimulating in people an interest in God. It's there. It's there. Their hearts, their hearts yearn for Him. The other observation that, that I would make is that Paul gave them something to believe, and I don't have time to develop this uh, in any detail. I simply want to point out some of the facts about God that Paul leaves with them. The first is that God made them. Verse 24, the God who made the world and all, all things in it. Uh, God made you. Do you realize that? Not, you couldn't draw one breath without God's permission. Your heart would not beat one more time without his direction. We think of ourselves as autonomous, independent beings, but we're not. We're utterly dependent upon him. He is the creator of the universe. But more importantly, he made you for himself. As Chesterton said, he is, he is a lonely God. Remember what Jesus said to the woman at, at the well? He's seeking you to worship him. Second thing that, that Paul says is you can, you can know him. The pagan world was haunted by remote, disinterested gods that were, that were terribly desirable but, but unknowable. Aristotle said, all men dream of God, but no man can, can know him. The other thing that Paul says is that God is very near. He's not playing hard to get. He's not up there. I think, again, he must have pointed up there to the Acropolis, and he said, he's not up there. He's just as near as your mouth and your heart. All you have to do is, is ask. If you seek him with all of your heart, you will, you will find him. That's the consistent message of the Bible. Jeremiah puts it in his prophecy, chapter 29. This is God speaking. I know the plans that I have for you, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart, and I will be found by you. What do you have to do to find God? You just have to seek him. Just open your heart and and he's very, very close, just as close as your mouth and, and your heart. And then finally, he points out that everything centers on the man that he raised uh, from the dead. He says uh, he has fixed a day, verse 31, in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man uh, through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. He just tosses out almost a throwaway line. He says it all centers on a man. doesn't even mention the name Jesus. A man that solved the problem of, of death. And that was the end of his talk. And we say, now wait a minute, Paul. You didn't give him the four spiritual laws. You didn't really give him anything to believe. Well, do you understand what Paul is doing? Have you, have you ever observed how bleak Jesus and the apostles were in their evangelism? They didn't hit people right over the head. What they did was to toss out some bait and, 
see how people responded. That's what Peter means when he says, be ready to give an answer to everyone that asks you a reason for the hope that's in you. Throw out a comment that provokes a response so that they ask you what's going on, you see. I, I sometimes think we're far too explicit. We give people too much. We tell them things that they're really not ready to ready to hear. And anyway, they've heard it over and over again. I think, again, that's why Jesus was so cryptic in things that he said. He was talking to people that thought they'd heard every, every answer. They had all the cliches down. And he just came at them from, he subverted their thinking by coming at them from, an, from another angle and saying something that made them think, you see. I was talking to a friend of mine, a man that's in the Wednesday morning class, and he was telling me he had to go through an MRI. And uh, he, he's he'd been wanting to, to share his faith, give his faith away, and it's hard for him. He finds it difficult to get involved in the conversation. But he said, I, I've been thinking about this idea of just throwing some bait out and seeing how people respond. So I've been asking the Lord to show me how to do that. And as he, you know, when you, when you have an MRI, they usually will ask you if you've got anything metallic in your body, pins or plates or anything, because uh, you know, it can create all kinds of distress. And uh, so she asked him, do you have anything metallic in your butt? No. So they put him through the MRI, and she said, this is odd. I keep getting some metallic readings from your head. And she said, are you sure you don't have a plate in your, in your head? Said, no, I don't, no, I don't have a plate in my head. She said, odd. I have, keep getting this metallic reading. And, he's, and he said, he got this sudden insight. And he said to her, I know what it is. It's the helmet of salvation. <laughs> and she said, What? Then he could give her a reason for the hope that was in him. That's what I'm saying. You know, just throw out. I sometimes just ask people, are you interested in spiritual things? And just see how they respond. Don't say anything. When they get, don't critique what they, what they say. Just listen to them. And, and nine times out of ten, they'll, they'll ask you, are you? Or sometimes I'll ask them, what's your philosophy of life? I'm just kind of nosy. Tell me what... What do you live for? What gives meaning to your life? What gives purpose? On what basis do you make moral judgments? And just listen. Don't critique it. Just listen. And very often they'll ask you what, the, what hope, what is it that generates your, uh, uh, your hope. Well, one thing more. Paul does say this is something we must take very, very seriously. Uh, God is overlooking the times of ignorance. This is not a date on the calendar. It's rather a state of being that most of us go through a period of time we just don't know, but once we know that there is a God who made us and who wants us and who is near us and who can be found if he is sought for and who is found through the man that, that he raised from the dead, when we hear that, then the times of ignorance are over and we've got to do something about it. Paul says this is, this is, this is serious. This is serious. God is now declaring to men, that all everywhere should repent, that is, change their mind about the direction in which they're going and, and, and pay heed to the man that he raised from, from the dead. But, you know, you really don't have to tell people that there's a judgment coming. They know. They know. I still remember a, a scene in, in that television program, that was the week that was, and David Frost sitting behind a card table and there are two doors behind him one labeled hell and one labeled heaven and people keep coming to the coming to the uh, to the card table and uh, they're holding in their ha- their hats in their hands and they say which way should I go and and Frost would say you know 
And they would say, tell me, which way do I go? Frost would say, you know. And people know. They know. Carl Menninger, in, in, in his book, Whatever Happened to Sin, mentions on the front page the self-styled prophet in Chicago who used to walk around saying to people, repent, repent, repent. Menninger was walking with his, his colleague, and as, as they passed this prophet, this man said to, said to the good doctor, how do you know? How do you know? Say, we know. We just, we just know. You don't need to drive people to the edge and over the edge and humiliate them. They, they know. They know. Jesus said that when the spirit of truth has come, he, and not us, will convince the world of sin. That is the sin of unbelief in Jesus. That's the sin of which people are guilty. All other sins have been paid for on the cross. He will convict them of sin. That is the sin of unbelief in Jesus. Of righteousness. That is, they have fallen short of the standard of righteousness. They know they don't measure up to the laws of their land, the rules of their fraternity, or their own laws. They know. And of judgment, Jesus said. They just know. So Paul uh, delivered his message and left it ringing in, in their ears. We're told there were three responses when they heard of the resurrection of the dead. Some began to sneer because while Greeks believed in the immortality of the soul, they did not believe in a resurrection of the body. And that will be the response that some will have, contempt. It's usually the response of, of defeated pride. They have nothing more to do than to scoff. Others say, we, we'll hear you again concerning this. This wasn't a polite dismissal. I, I think they were hooked. They wanted, they wanted to hear more because he had talked into the, about the darkness of their lives, their dismal experiences, and the, the dread that they had of death. They'd spoken of issues that they all were, uh, were concerned about, and they wanted to hear more. And, and then there were a few, Luke says, some men joined him and believed, among whom was Dionysius the Areopagite, who was one of these philosophers, these bright young men who had been engaged in debate with Paul, whose heart had been gripped by the truth, who later became the first pastor of the church in Athens, tradition tells us, and later on the bishop of that, of that city. And, and, and interestingly enough, a woman named Damaris, who was probably one of the Hatirai. There were a group of high-class call girls, I don't know how else to describe them, that were highly educated because they spent their time with senators and and uh, philosophers and, and uh, kings and leaders. And so they were educated and permitted to engage in debate with the men of their day. That was something the other men and other women, unfortunately, were not a part of. And she was one of these uh, high-class prostitutes that heard the gospel and, and responded to it. We don't know anything about her, what, what happened to her, but what an impact Paul had on that, on that place, left behind a a little church that apparently flourished and became a light in, in that dark place. I want to tell you something a friend of mine told me this morning after the first service, and I want to leave this, this with you. He said, what this reminds me of is the experience I have when I'm jogging after work. He said, I come home after work, and before dinner I go out and jog, and as I run down the streets, I will run by people's backyards, and I will uh, smell uh, their barbecues and that wonderful aroma is wafting over the fence and I smell it and it makes me so hungry I can hardly wait to get back home to eat. And I thought exactly. You know, Paul says we are a fragrance of life. 
Wherever we go, we leave behind that sweet aroma of Christ. It may not smell good to everyone. Paul says it will smell like death itself to some. But to some, it'll, it will smell like life. By what we are, the winsome lifestyle that, that walking with our Lord gives us, and by what we say, we will create in others this great hunger and draw them toward our Lord. The thing to do is just to be available. To say, Lord, I'll, I'm available. Here I am. I'll do whatever you want me to do in order to draw people to you. Let's pray. Thank you for this reminder again that uh, there are people out there who, who hunger greatly for, uh, for you and uh, that we've been placed here with a, a message that we can deliver to them that will satisfy the deepest hungers of their hearts. Make us faithful. Give us the courage to be available. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.